like to welcome all of you that are joining us online today. Over the course of the weekend here in Marquette, we had a very significant uh, snowstorm that happened, a lot of high winds, a lot of snow, and so most of the churches in our area canceled for Sunday, but our desire is to bring you our message today uh, so that you can keep up with what's happening because next Sunday we'll be moving into our March sermon series called Destined to Dream, and I believe that God has a number of people, not only in, in Silver Creek Church, but, but just within the body of Christ that he desires to plant within you a God dream because he wants to do something incredible through you. And what we're going to do in the month of March is we're going to look at uh, several characters in Scripture um, in whom God placed that kind of a dream, and we're going to look at the impact that that kind of a dream had on their lives. Destined to Dream, it's our March sermon series, and we'd love to have you join us here at Silver Creek Church. But for today... We're going to wrap up our series called Major in the Minors. It's a series where we've been discovering major truths found in the minor prophets. And our minor prophet today that we'll be looking at is the prophet Joel. And it was between 835 and 830 that Joel's ministry uh, took place, and it took place specifically in uh, the kingdom of Judah, uh, and he specifically lived and, and really connected around the city of Jerusalem. It would have been during the ministry of King Josiah. Uh, we read about that in 2 Kings chapter 11, and Josiah, King Josiah was unique in that he, uh, he ascended to the throne at the age of seven, but during his uh, younger years, he remained under the mentorship of the high priest Jehoiada. The societal backdrop or what was happening in Jerusalem and in Judea at the time of this, uh, of Judah rather, in the time of this writing was really unique. It was something that was going on that I'm sure a lot of you would have loved to have been there at that time. I know sometimes we think, boy, it would have been incredible to uh, have lived during Bible times and what was going on during this particular uh, little, little uh, minor prophet book that Joel wrote, I think you'd have loved to have lived there, and, and I'll just tell you that, that what it was, was bugs. There were bugs happening during the writing of Joel's book. Let me go to Joel chapter 2 and verse 25, where Joel says this, through, that God says this through the prophet Joel, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts. And the young locust, the other locust, and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. As we get started today, I want to begin by sharing with you something that uh, may not initially make sense, but it will as we go along in my message today. The first thing is this, that locusts eat more than leaves, the book of Joel, it starts out talking about different types of locusts. 
that have invaded the area in and around the nation, the people of Judah, in and around the city of Jerusalem. And it says that there were locusts, there were also great locusts, there were young locusts, there were other locusts, and in fact, then there were locust swarms. Now, for you and I, we live here in the UP, and if you're part of Silver Creek Church, this certainly applies to you, um, and maybe we can just spread this out even to the Midwest, but if I were to ask you, what is one of the great benefits of living here in the UP in the wintertime, one of the things that might be on your list is that here in the wintertime, we don't have to deal with bugs. So what Judea, or excuse me, Judah and, and, and Jerusalem were going through in Joel's time uh, was something that it's a little bit difficult for us to relate to, but, but I think I can grab one uh, experience that, that many of us have had who have lived here in the, the UP and, and, and in uh, the upper Midwest that we might be able to, to, to uh, have a comparison with is something called forest tent caterpillars. And those scientists tell us that, that there is, uh, they are native to uh, Michigan, they're native to upper Michigan, I am sure, also native to northern Wisconsin. But as recently as in 2010, we had, uh, we had an infestation um, here in the UP of these forest tent caterpillars. Science uh, tells us that they, they really, they, they, they come about every 10 to 15 years and an infestation may last two to three years in duration. Now, my family and I, we live uh, in an area of, of around Marquette, actually just a little bit south of town, that's known as Oak Ridge. And I remember that when we were looking for a home, I absolutely loved the fact that the home that we were looking at and eventually purchased was in a, in a, in a neighborhood and on a street called Oak Ridge because it just was exactly that. It is a, an area that that has a tremendous amount uh, of oak trees that are there. And one of the favorite uh, things for these, these uh, forest tent caterpillars to eat are leaves from and including the oak tree. And what I noticed over the course of that summer is uh, once we hit full foliage that summer, which here uh, in Marquette this summer I think will, will be like July or something like that. But once we hit full foliage uh, the, the, and the tent caterpillars began to move into our area, what happened was that foliage began to decrease uh, and decrease and decrease. And at first you couldn't figure it out until you looked really closely at the leaves, even as high as at the very, the very top of the canopy in our neighborhood and, and th those leaves began to shrink until literally there was nothing left, not from a lack of water, but literally they were being eaten uh, at such an incredible pace that they were literally disappearing right before our eyes. Now, I want you to imagine with me that this, uh, that this, this infestation of tent worms um, would happen not 
not just for a few weeks one summer, um, but literally would go on for a period of time because that's what was happening in Judah around Jerusalem. These locusts, um, they were literally wave after wave, and it was creating havoc upon their lives. And as if a locust sweeping into your, your area um, and eating everything in sight was not enough, after the locusts came through and did that, the Bible says that then the great locusts came in, and they began to do the same thing. And my guess is by the word great, I'm thinking that they were just bigger. So not only have we had an infestation of locusts, but now even the bigger locusts have come. And they've begun to eat anything that might possibly be left. And then you think, well, maybe we'll get a little bit of a break. Maybe uh, the, 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 the land can sort of recover a little bit. But just about the time that, that that might be happening, the Bible says that then another wave, this time of young locusts, they come next. And after the young locusts have gone, then there's this category of locusts that the Bible just calls other locusts. I don't have any idea what that would be, but... But literally, Joel is running out of names for the different kinds of locusts that are coming through the land. And then finally, it was the swarm of locusts that came. And literally, there was nothing left after they came through. And I want us to understand that this is something that would affect the grapevines that were in the area. It would affect the fig trees. It would affect the, the grain. It would affect the fields where the crops were. It would literally affect the ground because the ground, it needs, um, it needs vegetation to continue to, to put the right nutrients into the soil. It literally would have affected the wheat and barley harvests. It would, it would affect things like pomegranate trees, palm trees, apple trees. It would affect their food sources. It literally, the Bible says, affected their joy and their gladness. It would, it would affect the seeds for future years of planting. They would have been eaten up. Their storehouses, their granaries would all literally be devastated. And in chapter 1, verse 12, the second half, the prophet Joel says this, Surely the joy of mankind withered away. That gives us an understanding of just how severe this infestation of locusts was. The time frame of these waves of locusts is described as being years, and the impact from it would have been terrible. So through Joel, God tells the Hebrew people, I will repay you for these years. He doesn't say that I'm going to repay you the, the leaves that were eaten or the, the crops that were eaten or the vegetation that was eaten by the locusts. He literally says it's going to be the years that I will repay you for, that, for what the locusts have done. But what does God mean, I will repay you the years that were eaten by the locusts? I have a thought about this that I just want to share with you from my personal history and my past. And, and that is that 
uh, as a much younger man, uh, one of the ministry positions that the Lord led us into, when we arrived there, uh, we received a rather, a rather cool welcome from that, that church family. And that, that, that cool welcome um, wasn't over in a few weeks or, or, or even a few months, but it, it lasted uh, for a period of the first couple of years that we were there. And during that time, uh, my wife Veronica and I, we shed, uh, we shed a, a lot of tears because we felt that the people um, were not accepting us, but then there was a breakthrough that came. And after that breakthrough, the following years that we were there literally were so wonderful. They were so fantastic that it felt like those difficult years had never happened. It wasn't just that, that the, 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 the years that followed the breakthrough were better than the earlier years. There, it literally erased all evidence of those earlier, more difficult years. And so there was this sense that, that it, it just was, it was so phenomenal. And when you and I, when we go through a difficult time, it's often all that we can see. It's the here and the now. It's hard for us to remember a better time. It's virtually impossible for us to imagine that things will, will ever become so good that we'll forget the difficulty that, that we're going through. But in Joel chapter 1, it's written about the past, and Joel chapter 2 is written about a future invasion of, of locusts that the Bible says are literally like an army. And Joel ties the past and the future events together under the same idea of the day of the Lord. And he refers to this day of the Lord. He describes it as being so dreadful that literally who can endure it? And God reminds them of the past judgment and he points to the future judgment. And there's some similarities here because in our lives, God uh, draws you and I to himself. And it's literally cyclical. And, and Judah was in a cyclical period of time where God had, had sent the locusts, he had sent his judgment, and he was sending them again. And that literally it was a cycle of God drawing them to a place of repentance through the judgment that he was pouring out on them. And God draws you and I to himself in this cyclical nature, and he will repeat it as often as necessary. Maybe you look back at a period of time in your life, and you recognize some of those years that God is talking about. You can say to yourself, you know, I realized that at that time I wasn't walking with the Lord and it seemed like everything in my life was being stripped away from me. Everything that I held dear was being destroyed. Maybe you feel like you're walking in one of those times right now. Well, I want you to know that I have good news for you today. And the good news is this, that God's objective during those times of judgment during those times of drawing, God's objective is always repentance. You see, God was not just randomly being unkind or mean to the Hebrew people. 
And I think that there are a lot of people that actually think this of God. They think that God is unkind. They think that he is uncaring. In fact, they, they, they ask it or state it in the form of a question when they say, why would a, a loving God who cares for us, why would he allow so much pain or so much devastation or so much destruction in the world today? They literally view these things as being God's fault for allowing them when in fact they are actually being brought about by mankind. Well, in Joel, God is trying to bring about a genuine spiritual change into their lives. And he is not allowing this judgment to sneak up on them, but rather he is saying it is coming and the purpose of it is so that it will bring about spiritual change in their lives. Let me go to chapter 2 of Joel, verses 12 and 13. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from showing, from sending rather, calamity. That phrase there, rending of garments, it's a Hebrew idea. And in their culture, it was an external display of extreme and intense grief. And it's mentioned several times in Scripture, but it's not really a common expression or a common occurrence within their culture. It's reserved for really the most extreme situations. Let me, let me give you an example of that from, from Genesis cha chapter 37 where we read the story about uh, a young man named Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And they had a plan that they would tell their father Jacob that their brother was killed by wild animals. And so they took his garment and they took blood and they sprinkled it all over that garment and they gave it to his father to prove to him that indeed their brother had been, uh, that had been killed by wild animals. And the Bible says that Jacob, the father, tore his own clothes, and he mourned for many days over the loss of his son. Now the whole purpose of this word from the Lord in the book of Joel is to proclaim the judgment that was coming to the Israelites, to the people of Judah, to the people of Jerusalem, in order that they would be restored to God. In the light of that coming judgment, he was saying, return to me. And he said, I, I don't want you to just give me an outward display uh, of grief. I don't, I don't want you to tear your clothes and just try to prove to me, oh God, we're sorry for our sins. But, but what I want you to do is I want you to grieve over your sin on the inside to the point where you are ready and willing to come back to me. And the scripture says that God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and he is ready for us to return to him I want you to know today friends that God spends great resources on winning and drawing you and I back to himself 
Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love what the commentary Barnes says, that God is enduring long the wickedness and rebellion of man and waiting patiently for the conversion and repentance of sinners. Did you know that God is not just merely sitting around waiting for you to respond to him or waiting for you to return to him, but rather he is actively working to draw you and I to himself. In John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise him up, them up at the last day. The Greek word here for the word draw is helkuo, which means to drag, and it's a, a word that can be used both literally and figuratively. But I want you to understand the way that that word is being used in John chapter 6 is not that God would be drawing you and I or dragging you and I to himself in a, in a sense that it's against our will, but that there is the idea that you or I are unable to come to him on our own and that God stands at the ready and he is there waiting for us to be willing to come to him to respond to his drawing and that he has the ability to scoop up us up in his arms and bring us to himself because under our own power we have no ability to come to him the hebrew the writer of hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 says this because the lord disciplines the one he loves he chastens everyone he accepts as a son god literally desires for you and i to come to him and he brings to us a sense of discipline as a parent would to their child why not so that it will drive us from him but that it was it will draw us to him that it will bring us back to him and i want you to know that if you are experiencing an invasion of, of, of destruction in your life, it would be likened to those, those locusts that were coming to Judah and Jerusalem. I want you to remember that God's purpose in all of it is that you would return to him, that you would cry out, that you would return with your whole heart. And you say, Pastor, I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. I want to come, but I can't. I have good news that he will literally drag you to himself when you have that desire. And Joel's announcement of God's judgment was to bring repentance to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I want to assure you this, that God's promise will always follow repentance. Joel says this in chapter 2, verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. When we repent and when we return to God, whether it's the first time or maybe it's happened several times in our lives that we've walked away from Him, I want you to know that His promises will always follow repentance. In Psalm chapter 103, Beginning at verse 10, the psalmist writes this. Speaking of God, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far uh, has he removed our transgressions from us. When we come to him, when we respond to his drawing, and we turn from our sin and we turn to him, the promises of God follow that repentance. The Bible promises us that when we turn to him, the peace of God that passes all understanding and all comprehension will be ours. Those promises, are, they, they literally follow that repentance. He promises us that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. He promises that he will give us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind rather than a spirit of fear. He promises us that if we submit to him, if we return to him, that we'll be able to resist the devil and he'll flee from us. He promises us that when we return to him, that there's wisdom for anyone who asks. He promises that he will meet our needs according to the riches in Christ's glory. He he promises us that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we will not fear evil because God is with us. He promises us that in all things it will work together for the good of God, those who love God. He promises to be a refuge and a help in times of trouble. He promises that we can walk in the full armor of God. He promises that we can ask and it shall be given that we can seek and we will find that we can knock and the door will be opened unto us. He's promised that he would provide us joy unspeakable and full of glory. One of the reasons that people will say that they don't want to return to God or they don't want to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior is that they don't want to give up the lifestyle that they're living they believe that they're having too much fun. Now, the Bible certainly says that the ple there is pleasure in sin and that pleasure will last for a season. But this means that there, there, there's, there may be some pleasure in it, but that it is short-lived at best. And one thing that I have learned, that even though there may be pleasure in sin, there is a price to pay for that sin. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Luke writes this, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come. When we turn from our sin, the promises, the refreshing of God will come to our lives. And there are two separate components when it comes to repentance. There's the turning to God, but there's also the turning away from sin. And I believe that the prophet Joel, when through him, God says, I will restore to you all the years that the locusts have eaten away, that what he is saying is that when you turn to me, when you turn from your sin, I am going to make the, the life that you live so wonderful that you you will not be able to remember those years that the locusts have eaten and destroyed and taken away from you. Happify is a, a website that is dedicated to building skills in the lives of people through happiness. And according to Happify.com, 90% of people 
agree that they have, have some major regrets in their lives. And I want you to know that when we turn to God and when we turn away from sin and we allow God to, to draw us to himself and we come to him, that you will not regret it. This morning I close with Joel chapter 3 and verse 14 that simply says multitudes are in the valley of decision. I believe within the sound of my voice, those of you that are listening online, wherever that may be, that there are some, and you would have to say, Pastor, I've been away from God for a long time. And I believe that the Holy Spirit this morning, through these words of the prophet Joel, God is drawing you to himself. You live with a lot of regret. And I believe that the voice of God, the heart of God is calling you to himself. He's calling you to repentance. He's calling you to turn away from your sin. He's calling you to turn from God. And he will literally grab you and bring you to himself. And his promise is this, that the life that you will have will be so rich that it will be that you will encounter the promises of God to such a depth that you will not even remember the comparison to what life used to be like. I'd invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as I pray for you this morning. Father, I, I pray for those that are joining me here in this, this uh, message that are listening to what I've been saying, to what God has placed on my heart. And I, I pray for the ones that may be away from you. They may be far from you today. Maybe they've never had a relationship with you through Jesus. Maybe they did as a younger person or as a child, but they would have to admit that they are far from you. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will just begin to draw them, that your Holy Spirit will embrace them today, and that he will literally draw them to you. Father, I pray that there would be a desire in them to come back to you, that in their hearts they say, God, I want to turn to you. I, I want to turn away from my sin, but I am powerless to do so on my own. God, I thank you that your word assures us that you will do it for them, that you will bring them to yourself. Father, I pray that today will be an incredible day of restoration between them and yourself. Father, I thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.